Welcome to Movement Memos, a truth out podcast about things you should know if you want to change the world. I'm your host, Kelly Hayes. Today we are talking about disasters and the lessons they bring. From COVID-19 to wildfires, earthquakes, hurricanes, and much more, we are living in an era of compounding catastrophes. The spread of variants like B117 has outpaced a troubled vaccine rollout in the U.S., and experts have already predicted another highly energetic hurricane season. And yet, refrains about getting back to normal abound. But as most of us know, the normal we knew was already a disaster for many. It was the disaster of capitalism, which atomized us into individual narratives on the same sinking ship. It was the disaster of neoliberalism, a capitalist project that has systematized the destruction of many of the gains we had won under this system and decimated an already unsound social safety net. It was a ubiquitous and yet divided tragedy that allowed many people to feel just secure enough that they weren't willing to fight for anything better or for each other. Now, in fairness, when most people say they want to get back to normal, what they really mean is that they want to feel safer than they do right now and to see their families again and to enjoy some of the simple pleasures that they've lost during the pandemic. But all of those things have a context, and it does matter how we talk about and envision the things we want, because it matters what kind of world we're trying to imagine into being. If we aren't intentional about crafting a different context for our lives and aspirations, then we really are left with visions of normalcy dancing in our heads, a normalcy that is toxic by default. So what new context should we be imagining? How should we name it, and how should we build it? To help tackle those questions, I am excited to welcome my dear friend Joesha Dutta to the show. Joesha is a tri-coastal Bengali-American artist, cultural organizer, and pop-ed facilitator. She is also a co-founding member of Another Gulf is Possible Collaborative and serves on the steering committee of the Climate Justice Alliance, galvanizing voices and experiences from across the Gulf South to the Global South, and working towards a just transition for both people and the planet. Joesha, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kelly. It's really good to be here with you. How are you doing today, friend? I am pretty well. I'm hanging in this weekend. Well, I am so grateful to have you on the show today because you are a voice I trust absolutely on this subject. Every time there is a disaster in the Gulf, you are the person I turn to for advice about where people should donate and how they should pitch in, because I know another Gulf is possible is always engaged and on top of what needs to be happening. And right now we are in a disaster that a lot of people don't want to admit is still happening, while also staring down many more disasters in the immediate future. And all of this is happening amid a longing for a really toxic status quo. And as much as I don't think we should get holier than now and lecture people for saying they want to get back to normal, I do think we need to continue to trouble the idea of normalcy, especially under capitalism where normalcy is a death march. And I mean, sure, after the last year, a somewhat more chill death march with a little more freedom of movement may sound appealing by comparison, but we were already living a pretty devastating cycle of disaster and grotesque response. And that's basically what got us here. So we really need to make this a moment of reclaiming what we need to reclaim, but also dreaming bigger and envisioning things differently. So to that end, I just want to start with the concept of a just recovery, which I know is an idea you and some other grassroots folks in the Gulf came up with when you were organizing relief around Hurricane Harvey. 
Can you tell our listeners a bit about that and what we mean when we say we need a just recovery? Yeah, yeah, happy to share the story. So, you know, the folks that I roll with in the Gulf South, my crew, so to speak, there are folks who have been organizing since before Hurricane Katrina, during Hurricane Katrina, after Hurricane Katrina. So when we were preparing for Hurricane Harvey, which for those of us who have been facing this kind of climate catastrophe over and over again, when a hurricane's coming, you don't know where it's going to go. There's a cone of probability. So when it's coming, you know, we're wanting to figure out how can we support each other. But as we know, the government and big NGOs are not necessarily going to come to the aid of the folks who I feel most accountable to in my work and the folks that we build with. So we were convening calls, these grassroots calls, rapid response calls in the days that were leading up to Hurricane Harvey. And at that point, we didn't know where it was going. It was somewhere between New Orleans and Houston. We were trying to identify who had capacity, who could take funds, where would the funds go, all of these kinds of questions in developing you know, mutual aid. And you know, at that time, 2017, it was before it was really common parlance. Some of us were using that term, but we were just doing what we felt we had to do. And during one of those calls, we were trying to distinguish you know, our work and our rapid response work in social media from the work of kind of the mainstream, the Red Cross, FEMA, others. So we were spitballing hashtags just to make sure we could figure out a way to align and um, bring together our communications. And I don't really remember, you know, when you're brainstorming something, lots of, you know, ideas are, are coming out. So I don't actually remember if it was Brian, Fadas, Ramsey Sprague, or myself. Um, but one, it was one of the three of us, because I remember we were the three that were kind of hot and saying stuff. And someone said, you know, just Harvey recovery. Um, and all of all of the those folks are now another Gulf is possible collective members. So from that, you know, we started using that hashtag just Harvey Recovery, and it did go to Houston. We know that that was one of the most devastating natural disaster that Houston had faced. Uh, and then recently, there's just the polar vortex. Disaster after disaster keeps hitting the region. So we. Um, saw that that term got get used it was really kind of amazing to see how viral uh, our page went at that time that was my first experience in really seeing um work go to like every country in the world so that was it was really wonderful to see the support for houston and for kind of the grassroots at that moment um we then saw hurricane maria come to puerto rico and the hashtag started to get used, um, dropping the Harvey part, so just recovery. And so in the work with the Climate Justice Alliance, that frame got taken up and then has kind of taken a life of its own, which in a way is really wonderful, you know, as narrative strategists, narrative builders, we want to see our ideas, you know, get out there and, and you know, be used. But one of the issues with that is very similar to the term resilience, uh, just recovery has now kind of been taken and is at time being used by the very forces that we created the term to counter. 
you know, so we really want to reemphasize that the just recovery frame is about being grassroots led and centered to make sure the needs and desires and, you know, what the most vulnerable marginalized folks um, are, are really requesting in times of disaster is what is being met. Those the needs that are being met are not being determined by other people and that we're really centering folks um, talking and being with them and at times it's us ourselves, right? So the whole idea of mutual aid is not that somebody is coming from the outside that we figure out ways to help each other because the Red Cross, FEMA, all of these folks are not connected. They don't know, you know, the, the groups that are really helping folks. They don't know, you know, the grandma down the street that is gonna, you know, need to make sure that a generator gets to her because she's on um, oxygen, you know, those kinds of things that you need to know to really support your community in these times of disaster. So that's kind of that immediate response moment. And so we really want to, to see the whole just recovery model is shifting from this aid, extract, displace, disaster capitalism model to a really uh, radically new different way of thinking about how we approach disasters, which are gonna continue to come, right? They're gonna not, they're not stopping. Grounded again in what people need, finding the resources, the tools, building, you know, support, creating brigades to get folks recovered, to rebuild their homes, their workplaces, their places of worship, the places they play, you know, to, to get all of that rebuilt so that at the end of the day, they're not displaced, they're not thrown out of their community, but they're actually stronger, better than they were in the past. And I think sometimes there's the stronger together, all these hashtags that happen after a disaster, but we see the same patterns over and over. So the intention of the Just Recovery framework is to break that pattern and for us to create a new vision that is really self-determined and that in this pandemic disaster, this chrysalis moment we're collectively in as like global society right now, we're all you know hoping to emerge from the cocoons. You know, I think it's really resonant. We're we're still in a response mode. We're still we still haven't exited the disaster itself, but we can start to think forward now about how that just recovery model can be used in this moment. It's not a, it's not exactly a climate disaster, but it's a very similar recovery process that we're going to be facing. So what does that rebuilding look like after we hopefully get out of this pandemic moment? Well, thank you for that history. And speaking of those brigades, I also know you were in Cuba during Hurricane Irma, and you witnessed something very different than we see here in the U.S. when a hurricane hits. Can you say a bit about that? Yeah, um, I was in Cuba during, well, Hurricane Maria was approaching, but Hurricane Irma, um, I was there for the kind of approach, the impact, and the aftermath. And Hurricane Irma was right on the heels of Hurricane Harvey. So I really had the experience of seeing the difference between the response that folks have. I was there and it feels like every time there is a hurricane in New Orleans, 
people just really have complete meltdowns. They freak out. They're running around trying to get groceries, trying to get sandbags, trying to get all the things. And there's this huge sense of panic. Um, people in the same same things you kind of have to do, but there's always this panicked feeling that that resonates throughout wherever you're going to get your stuff. You feel everybody else is really nervous, panicked. People are calling each other. Um, and so I noticed when I was in Cuba, you know, it's hard to communicate. I started getting all these texts from my friends and, you know, people trying to be like, are you okay? Is everything okay? Because it was hard, you know, it's a category five hurricane that was approaching. And so I'm, I'm kind of freaking out. So that's my instinct as a American, you know, U.S. person is to freak out when the hurricane's coming. But I noticed everybody around me super chill, like not really, it's not. I'm like y'all, you all know of hurricanes coming, like pointing to the TV. They keep talking about El Ciclone, El Ciclone. And the, so I asked my host who I'm staying, I was like, you know, is everything, is folks gonna get ready? And they were like, don't worry, don't worry. People will do, do what they need to do. And then sure enough, it was like they went, people went through their whole work day, five o'clock, hurricanes coming. They just started to put the machine into place to get ready. Um, and you saw all these folks helping each other, right? Like I, at that point, I'd been there for about a week. So I'd gotten to know the folks, you know, around me and saw like this shopkeeper helping that shopkeeper to put, take their signs down. You know, it's just the whole community came together to, to make sure that they were prepared for the hurricane to come. And around midnight that night, uh, the hurricane came, it was a category five. It was extremely intense, really scary. I uh, didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, obviously, power went down, all that sort of thing. But the next morning, it was just, you know, everyone went out. There was flooding. People were cleaning up all the debris. Uh, it wasn't, didn't take the direct impact where I was. The direct impact was further north on the island. But I heard, no, you know, nobody, I think maybe one person might have been injured, but nobody died in that hurricane. They were able to evacuate everybody from the place of, a direct impact. And one of the reasons for that was Cuba has developed the infrastructure to support people, to make sure people are cared for after the hurricane happens. And so while it's government coordinated and the government creates the infrastructure, the people themselves kind of implement that infrastructure. And really the biggest part that struck me was this brigades concept and that each place has brigades, people who are volunteering to come together, take care of each other, evacuate, clean up, build, you know, help people put their houses back together, whatever is needed. And that I was just reflecting the how effective that kind of model is. You know, Cuba is not a highly resource rich country, but the way they develop that community infrastructure the mutual aids, you know, it reduced that feeling of being isolated, that fear of not being taken care of, of losing everything that you have. So people approach to the disaster was so different. And it really stuck with me because, you know, we're, we're not in a place for that yet. I'm thinking we're closer than we were before, but I continue to ask myself, how can we create those kinds of structures here in the United States. And, and it might not come from the government right now, but I think at this point we can do it ourselves. So how do we do that? You know, create those kinds of support networks, those brigade models, 
and um, really, really inspired by, by Kiva, and that has continued to, to resonate. I am likewise inspired. It seems like so much of the suffering we experience in the wake of these disasters is rooted in the fact that we rely on authority. Authority that doesn't give a damn whether we live or die to rescue people, as opposed to having that kind of organization that you describe. I know here in Chicago, it was my dream for 2020. What I wanted to do with the last year was work on creating community response teams for climate catastrophes and kind of help create those spaces as planning spaces for how we can help each other in crisis, which I think would also ultimately create space for discussion and for political organization among people who are activated on behalf of each other's survival and well-being. And then, of course, the pandemic hit. And there was a bit of a scramble in all directions, including the formation of mutual aid pods. And I personally had a lot of varying demands placed on my time as an organizer and as a person whose health was sort of in collapse. But last spring, once the reality began to set in for folks, we saw waves of participation and generosity. We saw a lot of things, but we also saw a lot of projects nationally that didn't sustain over time because we didn't have the time put in to building the infrastructure that folks needed to sustain some of the work that was happening. I really hope more people will pick up Dean Spade's book, Mutual Aid, Building Solidarity During This Crisis and the Next, which provides a lot of really great how-to and practical advice for people who want to build out sustainable work because our projects really need established protocols around things like how conflict gets resolved and how money gets handled and how we navigate difference and harm when they arise, because these things will always come up. Yeah, I think it's a really good point on um, on sustainability and mutual aid, because I think it's really easy to burn out, uh, to want to always be the the shiny ball and I think that's a kind of syndrome the movement suffers from that we need to figure out how to not create conditions where we just elevate one person or one group and then that group or that person has conflict with another group that, that they don't get funding right like we need to figure out a more mutual aid approach to our own organizational slash movement infrastructure where we can rotate in, we can rotate out, we can give people the time that they need to replenish after really hectic hard times and not just expect the same people or the same organizations to be the ones who are, you know, constantly um, expected to do everything. And then if they get it wrong, we, you know, put them under fire and then throw them away, right? That's, it's not, that that way is not a mutual aid or regenerative way to approach the work. So I think this concept of mutual aid to not just think about it in a individualistic way, but to start thinking about it even in terms of the infrastructure we're building for, for the work itself. I am just gonna briefly interrupt us with a pre-recorded fundraising appeal. Because Truthout is a nonprofit news publication that has thus far survived the decimation of independent news. But we can't create independent news on a corporate landscape without help from readers and listeners like you. So if you're enjoying the show, please consider heading to truthout.org to make a donation today. I want to take a moment to talk about the role of the prison industrial complex and carcerality in these disasters. 
Prisons, jails, and detention facilities are basically disaster zones of capitalism, even on their best days. For one thing, we have often seen prisons touted as vehicles for new economic growth in areas where coal mining, mountaintop removal, and other highly toxic work has bottomed out, which leads to terrible health outcomes for imprisoned people who are trapped in those toxic environments and, of course, get next to no medical care. All of that is routine, but during climate catastrophes and during the pandemic, we have seen unthinkable levels of suffering and mass death play out. I'm thinking about the prisoners who were left behind in Orleans Parish Prison during Hurricane Katrina, and how the city itself became a prison for people who were trying to escape after the storm, with Gretna police officers firing shots over the heads of refugees who were trying to leave the city on foot. I'm also thinking about the people of the Little Village neighborhood here in Chicago and other highly policed neighborhoods who faced much higher rates of infection during the pandemic due to the number of residents being cycled in and out of Cook County Jail, which was basically a COVID factory at the height of the pandemic. In Little Village, of course, we also saw Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot greenlight a demolition project during shelter-in-place that basically engulfed the entire neighborhood in a toxic cloud of smoke while people were not only not being evacuated, but under orders to stay exactly where they were, which to me is disturbingly reminiscent of the way imprisoned people find themselves trapped inside of toxicity and disaster, and the way the folks in New Orleans found themselves trapped after Hurricane Katrina. I think it's crucial that we make these connections because in an era of constant crisis, we will see more of this kind of thing. And right now in Chicago, we are seeing the Final Five campaign, which is a campaign largely shaped by young people, that's dedicated to the closure of the final five youth prisons in Illinois, teaming up with the youth-led campaign to stop General Iron from installing a metal shredder on Chicago's southeast side. And there's a real recognition there between the violence of incarceration and the violence of environmental racism. My friend Olivia Blocker, who's the campaign manager with the Final Five campaign, shared some thoughts with me recently about the show of solidarity between the two groups. And I just wanted to take a moment to uh, share a few of her words, if I could. She said, I think about how spaces that lack life-affirming resources due to generations of disinvestment are more easily exploitable by polluters and prisons. Even if the general iron facility is being built in an urban setting and most youth prisons are built in rural settings, I think both in their own ways are spaces of isolation and resource deficiency. Lincoln, Illinois' main economic resource is prisons. In both cases, these prisons and polluting industries move into desperate communities with the full political backing of aldermen, legislators, and mayors to exploit a labor force with few options. I also think an undercurrent of all of this is the fundamental idea of who was deemed disposable. Both Stop General Iron and the Final Five campaign seek to protect black and brown youth and forefront those voices in our respective campaigns because that is who is most impacted by pollution and prisons, and that is who the state has deemed disposable. So, Juisha, I know your connection to some of what I'm describing here runs deep and is very personal. So I want to get your take on this bond between carcerality and environmental racism and what it will take to stop these acts of devastation, and in some cases, annihilation. Yeah, uh, I think it's a really important connection to make. You know, living in Louisiana, where we are the highest incarcerated state in the highest incarcerated country on the planet, and where plantations once were, prisons now sit in Louisiana. 
So yeah, I think that this fundamental model of extraction that our society is based on, that capitalism is based on, really resonates in terms of how in Louisiana, there's this reflexive instinct to extract. And that extraction, you know, one of the ways that that extraction happens is taking people out of their communities, incarcerating them, and then basically forcing labor. And the prisons, as you know, in Louisiana are really horrible. But then we look at the situation of the oil and gas industry, and it's a consistent form of extraction that we also demand from the earth. So I think these reflexes and the muscles that we have built are one and the same in extracting from human beings and extracting from the planet and seeing, seeing those precious resources as expendable, as extractable, as not things to value, to cherish, to honor. And instead, I, I really feel like if we took the time to think about these harms, we would, we would be really considering a transformative justice approach. And we would really think about a different way when there are harms in our communities, because we wouldn't want to extract them. We wouldn't want to take them out their community and put them somewhere else where they're isolated and abused. So in this fundamental shift, this whole idea of just transition and seeing just recovery as a bridge to just transition, we have to reconsider that instinct and that reflex and the urge that folks have to just take and extract and just thinking about what it would mean to be regenerative, how to be more considerate of the value and inherent worth of every being and every you know precious resource that we have and, and really thinking and valuing every every living being and that in that we would be finding a more balanced and symbiotic way to live with the planet and with each other and so right now where we're at the carceral system is a really clear example to me of the horrible extraction and we think you know, about the hurricanes, we, when we when these forces come together, like the hurricanes that came to Houston, there wasn't even a plan for how to evacuate the prisoners. You know, it was just like, well, those people are expendable, they're extractable, we don't even need to have a plan for them. And that's just really destructive. It's unconscionably horrible, I think, to not be considering the needs of every human in these times of disaster. And I think it's, you know, a very clear way that we can connect the way we treat people to the way we treat the planet. The fundamental premise behind both, behind the fossil fuel industry and the prison industrial complex to me is one and the same. And I think once you start to put those dots together, you can't stop that kind of intersectional thinking and you can't stop understanding how much we need to change and realizing that every thread in the fabric of our existence is currently really toxic and that we need to figure out a way to remediate that and we need to remediate this whole, you know, the whole fabric, our whole way of being. Once the veil is lifted, it can't really, you can't put it back. Absolutely. And there's just so much to reckon with, and so many losses and harms to grieve. I think grief work is deeply important in this moment. And as you know, I've spent a lot of time organizing uh, during the last year around collective grief as one of those necessary reckonings. 
In the last couple of months, my collective has been working on a mass distribution of KN95 masks in Chicago to help people combat the new strains. And we've seen those distributed by mutual aid groups to students and to their families, to folks being released from jail, to essential workers, and many others. But it's very significant to me that they're also being distributed by the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization at a memorial event this weekend on the one-year anniversary of the Hillco smokestack implosion that covered the community in toxic smoke last year. The event is a memorial for people who've been lost to environmental racism in Little Village. But as people from the neighborhood tell me all the time, there's really no separating COVID losses from people lost to environmental racism in a place like Little Village because pre-existing respiratory illnesses caused by pollution left so many people vulnerable to COVID-19. The masks that are being shared at the event will actually be some reusable N95 masks we acquired to give people some ongoing protection. And I think that tying our survival of environmental violence, COVID-19, and state violence together with our grief over those things in an act of mutual aid is really powerful. And it makes me wonder how else we might bind together those ideas and intentions in our work. Yeah, I think the grief holding space along with or combined with the healing work that needs to happen are really present for me personally. I know that's the direction my work has taken. I am currently working with the Windfall Institute, which is an organization that's been providing residencies for movement organizers for over 30 years. And I'm an alumni of the program. And after experiencing kind of three weeks of rest, the gift of rest that that program gave me in 2019 really kind of changed, changed me, changed me forever pre-pandemic in realizing how much I needed to shift my approach to the work and how much the scale up of kind of healing justice approach was necessary. And so this need is, is just so great for organizers at this moment, I think for for everybody, but I think the organizing community in particular is super burned out. And yes, we really, we <laughs> so really need out. to, yes, we really need to think about how to hold the space for folks who are taking care of our communities, who are doing what has been needed for the last four years, for last generations, but particularly in the last year that we need to recognize how much people have been holding, how much they've been holding for their families, for their communities. And in this moment, we need to really, I think, put down some of the campaign work. We're through the election, you know, to really take the time for the healing, for the holding of the grief, for the reckoning, for the deep understanding of the, I think, really personal changes we need to make you know, to, to really think through what that's going to mean for us in our individual lives, in our family lives, in our community lives. And, you know, I'm an optimist. I think you can't be an organizer without being some kind of an optimist, dreamer, visionary. Because you, you have to have something you're moving towards because this world we're living in is so messed up. If you don't have, have a, you know, North Star you're moving towards, it's not going to be worth it. So if we're trying to build 
a just, sustainable, equitable, healthy, vibrant world, we are going to need to do some real healing, some real like grief holding for what this last year, but also what these last 500 years have meant in terms of the colonialism and extraction that we hold in our bones, right? That we hold all of that in our bodies. And so how do we take this time to really build this world we wanna see? We're called Another Gulf is Possible Collaborative. I believe Another World is Possible. I you know, want to see us hold the space that we need for the grief, for the healing, to, to be able to achieve this audacious vision for justice. And I think there'll be some sacrifices that we'll all have to make. And I think there is, and I think you alluded to this at the, the beginning of, um, yeah, some of the changes folks need to make are unclear. And so I think we need to hold space for the vision and also hold space for ourselves. And if we want to get to this dreamy, dreamy future, we need to hold all of that in tandem. It can't be always working, you know, for the cause and not taking care of ourselves. It can't be only taking care of ourselves and not caring about the other. There needs to be this balance. And there needs to be a, a consideration of sometimes the thing you're working for may not be something you actually get to experience, but you're working towards that vision. You're getting closer to the horizon. I, I've been working with Norma Wong and she and she often speaks of the horizon that we're moving towards. And so and to, to keep that horizon in your mind's eye as you're going through rough times. And so there's a quote by Rabindranath Tagore that I might not be saying exactly correct, but it's something to the effect of, you know, the person who plants the seed for the tree he'll never know the shade of is beginning to understand the meaning of life. And so I think that's where we're at at this moment. You know, we're kind of holding the seed in, in our hands. Um, we could just throw them away or we could plant them and know that we might not see that beautiful vision, but we can seed it. We can start to help nurture it and grow it and see some of the changes in the attitudes and behaviors, actions and systems that need to happen so the future generations can feel that shade experience the warmth of the sun and be in that vision that we hold. Absolutely. And I know that healing piece looks different for different people. One thing I've discovered is important for me right now is to be taking in more than I'm trying to sort of put out or produce, if that makes sense. I need to be reading a lot and not just reading news stories, kind of keeping pace with the sort of violent barrage of everything that's happening to the world and to us. But stepping outside of all of that and reading real books, whether that means audiobooks or scrolling through ebooks on my phone, and really reading intentionally, making space for that, and taking in good energy from other people, like cultivating within myself, um, not just sort of being extracted from all the time. And I've had no real choice myself this last year, but to really start building a practice around what healing and care look like in my own life due to the illness I've experienced and the burnout that you referred to that many of us as organizers have found ourselves experiencing during the pandemic. Because I used to be a person who would just kind of laugh off the idea of reducing my stress level or workload. I just thought that wasn't realistic. 
but it's my friends who do deep healing justice work who have helped me see how harmful that outlook is. Because it doesn't just hurt me to live like some kind of workhorse who's not allowed to get sick or go on a creative retreat or step outside of urgency. Me living in that mode all the time doesn't make us stronger in collectivity. Me making space for healing and modeling that and modeling the sustainability and collaboration that that kind of pause and rest and healing requires in our work, that makes us stronger. We're making ourselves stronger and our community stronger when we make space for healing and acknowledge that it's a necessary component of everything we do. So thank you so much for naming that, because for me, that's definitely one way I won't be going back to normal on the other side of all this, because my normal was fucked up and I don't want it back. I want something better and I want something better for all of us. So if we're not going to talk about getting back to normal, how should we talk about the future we want to build and what we want to restore? What should dreaming out loud with people about that sound like? Yeah, um, you know, I am an artist and someone who by nature also likes to bring people together to make art. And I think that's actually how we first got to know each other was when I was doing art for that wild action camp, which we could do a whole episode on that action <laughs> camp and the dynamics there, right? We could break that down. Yes, and, yes and, we could. And, you know, um, but I think, you know, the invitation to folks to share their visions with each other and also to consider how deep our need is to be around other humans and this dreaming space, this chrysalis moment we're emerging from, we are right now poised in coming out of our homes to be able to, to be with each other again. And how do we want to be with each other again? How do we want to create social spaces, create creative spaces, uh, recreational spaces? Uh, I think about where I live and, you know, we're a very bar centric city. It's an extremely bar centric city, but a lot of bars, you know, have been closed in New Orleans. A lot of bars have not made it through the pandemic and our music venues have even been shut down. So as things start to reopen, we want to think about where those spaces are, which communities are we rebuilding intentionally, those spaces to be together, to dream together, to build together. I actually have a dream to create a art tea house, a space that will bring people together for healing, for art making, art expression, uh, plant medicine, providing access you know, to different kinds of plant medicine that folks might not have experienced before. And just thinking about those kind of multi modality spaces that people cannot just dream, but actually manifest this future. So there are so many lessons that we will be taking away for years from everything we've been experiencing during the pandemic. Can you name one lesson that you hope will all hold close as we move through what is hopefully the home stretch of this current disaster and into the many struggles to come? Yeah. Um... One lesson, and I think I might give a different answer next week because I think there's so many lessons we've we've learned. I know I've there's just I've learned so so much about myself and every you know just everything in the last year. 
But when I think right now, as I'm you know, a week out from going back home uh, to New Orleans, where I will be living by myself, I've been with my family for over a year now, um, you know, attending to my elders and being with them, being with them 24 seven. And it has really made me realize how important the people who are closest to you are, you know, who is your pod? For me, it was very obvious because I was with my family, but I think a lot of folks, you know, who were not with their families had to figure out who are the folks that will hold it down with them, who will be there for them. And I think that's a lesson we need to keep considering in our hearts and minds as we go back to, again, not normal, but go out to whatever is next to really value and care for those folks who are closest to us. And I think that will have a ripple out effect in how we treat others. If we are always feeling cared for, if we are always feeling valued by those who love us and who, those who are closest to us, that will, I think, impact how we treat others in the world. And I'm really hoping, um, even though I will be physically uh, not as close to my parents for a little while. And honestly, we're, we're reconsidering our whole family structure. We all might move to, so we can be together again. And I think we'll also see a lot of those kinds of moves happening. I think people will be shifting their lives uh, to make sure that they can be closer to the people they care the most about. Because at the end of the day, that's what really matters. You know, not to be super cheesy, but you know, love, I believe deeply in love. And I think this, last year has given us a real opportunity to think through what that love looks like in action. I couldn't agree more. And if folks want to learn more from Joesha and follow her work and the work of Another Gulf is Possible, which I highly recommend y'all do, you can check out the show notes on our website at truthout.org. Well, this has been an amazing conversation, and I want to thank you so much for joining me today, Joesha. I deeply appreciate you. Yeah, Kelly, it's been really good to talk. Love you much. I love you too. I also want to thank our listeners for joining us today. And remember, our best defense against cynicism is to do good and to remember that the good we do matters. Until next time, I'll see you in the streets. Thank you for listening to Movement Memos. This show wouldn't exist if it weren't for Truth Out, and Truth Out's independent news and commentary wouldn't exist without listeners and readers like you. We have no paywalls, no corporate sponsors, and no ads, except for fundraising appeals like this one. So if you can and would like to support our work, please consider dropping by truthout.org to make a donation today.